All right, all right. Welcome once again to Drop Pass Podcast. We are under two months away from Christmas, ladies and gentlemen, and the 23rd episode of this podcast is now underway. And I got some good news to tell you. Since I got six out of seven winner predictions correctly last weekend, and second of all, Jack Eichel got out of Buffalo. And that took some time to say the least. Also, we got some contract updates in this episode and Connor McDavid continues to live on his own planet. But what else can you expect? There's few dubs to start this episode, so I think that we are ready to face the new episode without too much hassle. We will start with last weekend's UFC 267 results. Then I will bite into the Eichel situation. And for once, I'm not going to reveal this week's main topic beforehand. So you just have to stay with me until we get to that point. But with that said, let's get to the action. Without further ado, let's get going. Okay, my little honey badger. Time to see how far things escalated last weekend in Abu Dhabi. Like I said, Jan Blahovic lost his light heavyweight title against veteran Glover Teixeira. And to be honest, even though it was hard to see Jan lose his title, there was no one who deserved it more than Teixeira in that weight class. The fight was fairly one-sided and all credit goes to Teixeira for his win. The whole story is a huge dub for the entire sport as you saw such a long hard battle for the UFC gold and by that I mean there aren't too many 42 year olds with belts around their waist. Teixeira clipped Jan with a strong left hook in the second round and ended the fight via rear naked choke and you could almost see Jan's spirit leaving his body when Teixeira hit him with that left. He already dominated the first round on the ground and probably Jan realized that this was going to be a long night for him if this was the battle he was going to face through the five rounds. Teixeira had nothing to lose and it showed in his performance so huge congrats to the veteran himself. A real definition of a fighter. Angalaev got better of Tibura in the heavyweight division and Chimaev versus Zhang Ling. Well, it was an absolute ass-whooping. That guy is an absolute animal. Like, can you believe that Shimaev has a strike differential of plus 122 and has only taken one significant strike in his last five fights? That's absolutely disgusting. Bring all the hardware and book the super fight already because he is as nasty as it gets. Complete domination, and it didn't even last as long as most guys do in bed, so you could say that it was quick. Foreplay included. And he even had time to talk sh- during the fight. He just lifted John Ling in the air and shouted to Dana White something along the lines of Bring me Brock Lesnar, bring me everyone, I'm going to kill them all. So, someone could say that he could have done it in less than two minutes, but wanted to have some fun, like a predator playing with his prey. 
He's as dangerous as they come and he will be back in action in no time, since the belt already glares in the near future. And right after the fight, rumors started to spread that we could even see him fight again before the end of the year, so I will keep a close eye on the situation and bring you the latest details on the matter, I promise you. We'll see how the fights in the welterweight division go this weekend, because the results might reshape the standings and affect his next opponent, plus who even is crazy enough to take on this man. Probably the only ones can be found in the top 5, Covington, Burns, Edwards and Usman, but that's pretty much it. And yeah, I don't know where Neil Magny shouted out Shimaya on Twitter, but I have to say that you might be in too deep waters to do that, my friend. Alexander Dragovolkov also won his match, but unlike me predicting a stoppage, these two went full three rounds to decide the winner. Dan Hooker also ran into a wall against Islam Mahachev, and it isn't a surprise to anyone that this guy will find his way into a title fight next year as well. Another dominating effort and beautiful Kimura in the first round sealed the deal and was what many of us expected beforehand. Unfortunately, Hangman's ground game wasn't a match to Dagestani power and the only thing ahead of him is recouping and getting ready to face another tough customer in the top 10. Fight of the night though was the highly anticipated bout in the bantamweight division where Peter Jan just simply put on a clinic against Corey Sandhagen. And I want to clarify that Sandman wasn't bad in this fight by any means, but Jan's pedigree was just too much to handle. The fight pretty much went as I expected beforehand. Sandhagen had his chances in the first two to three rounds and even controlled the fight at times. But like I said in the previous episode, he had to get the stoppage during those rounds if he wanted to walk away as the winner from this bout. And once Jan had read through his playbook, it was a one-way street from that point on. It was extremely entertaining fight and props to Sandman for putting up a show with Jan. And the greatest thing was to see the mutual respect between these two fighters because both probably understood that it could have gone either way. This time though, the former champ earned his interim title and is bound to face his nemesis, Aljamain Sterling, in the rematch. Sanhagen continues his journey to the throne of the division and will match up against one of the top contenders of the bantamweight division in his next fight. The last notable fight was the one in the prelims. Makwan Amerkani versus Lero Murphy and... Well, it ended as I expected. Only difference being that it ended in the second round, unlike I had predicted the first round exit. Me and many others were impressed by Mako's first round performance, but once the guys got back to their feet in the start of the second round, it was night-night for Mr. Finland. Unfortunate to see that kind of ending to his contract, but now we just have to wait and see what is next for our Finnish UFC fighter. But then, the blockbuster, Jack Eichel to Las Vegas. Finally, 
Thank you, hockey gods. Took f***ing long enough. I laughed pretty hard for all the gifs and memes posted a couple days ago on Twitter once the news broke. The best one for sure was the one from Hangover Movie where the crew drove to Sin City in their classic convertible Mercedes-Benz. The rumors started to spread around the league when Kevin Weeks posted that Calgary were shopping Matthew Ketchuk to Buffalo in a package deal for Eichel. And somehow, day later, the news broke that Eichel was going to Vegas. And for starters, I have to question Buffalo's operations once again, because was this the best package of the year? And did you really have to delay this whole circus because of this deal? Seriously. The package included Alex Tuck, who is currently injured but should be back within the next two months, Peyton Krebs, who is on the verge of NHL breakthrough, Kuchnach Sabres, 22 conditional first rounder and 2023 second rounder. And yeah, Vegas also got Buffalo's 2023 third rounder, but that doesn't have much value in the big picture. The conditions in these picks are as follows. Now stay with me, get your game face on and clean the shit from your eardrums so that you get this. If Vegas' 2022 first rounder is in the top 10, which I highly doubt, Vegas will instead transfer their 2023 first round pick to Buffalo, which doesn't have any other conditions attached. Then, the 2023 second rounder, which links to the previous pick. So if that 2022 first rounder ends up being a top 10 pick, which I still highly doubt, the 2023 second rounder also transfers to 2024. So in conclusion, if the 2022 first rounder ends up being a top 10 pick, both picks transfer one year ahead. Why didn't I just explain it like that from the get-go? Well, f*** me sideways, it is what it is. Go check Cap Friendly if you still didn't get it. But what do I think about this transaction? Well, my first thoughts came out already, but from the professional point of view, I think it was a beneficial deal for both teams. Way too early to judge the winners and losers of this deal. Since Tuck makes his comeback in the next few months and Krebs is still a step away from the NHL stardom, but he is an exceptional two-way player with high ceiling, without a doubt. I like Tuck a lot, all the way from his days in Mini, and now that his skating has improved even more from the years spent in Minnesota, I like him even more. Buffalo though is in a place to be, and as Eichel experiment proved, it might not be the most fruitful for a talented young player. Looking at you, Dalin. Stay strong, brother. He could easily become their number one forward and could find chemistry with skilled winger Victor Olofsson at some point. And overall, they got some good young bucks coming up. Cousins is slowly becoming their number one center and you have to keep in mind that we haven't even seen Casey Middlestad yet this year. So we have to wait for his comeback as well. Krebs is a future top 6 center without questions and his overall game is extremely strong for his age. He tested his wings already this year in the bright lights but was placed in the AHL for the foreseeable future. 
If the middle stat experiment doesn't work out in Buffalo, he will be more than capable option behind Cousins or even below him on their lineup. Great skater, strong two-way capability, quick hands and deceptive shot. What else do you need? Once Eichel recovers from his surgery, Vegas has hands down one of the nastiest top two lines, even without questioning their defense. Just imagine. Full healthy lineup heading into the playoffs. Patch ready, scoring machine, Eichel, distribution and sniping specialities, and Stone, two-way wizard with strong all-around skills in the offensive zone. Size, speed, and skill all covered. Second unit, Marcheso, Carson, and Riley. He may be heading out, but they got depth in their lineup, and for example, Dadanov could fit in that spot as well. And we've seen what those guys are capable of already. Also, the third line consists of two-way pests with quick feet, so good luck beating that in the playoffs. Okay, okay, I'll step back for a moment before I get too excited, since the Golden Knights would be about 14 million over the cap limit at that point, Given the contracts of Pietrangelo, Martinez, Theodore, Lehner and Dadanov, so this group is going to change before Eichel is back. Or they could easily just do the Tampa Bay treatment and sit Eichel until the playoffs and that problem would be solved. Well, nevertheless, good deal for both teams and especially the 2022 first rounder is a decent asset, even if and when the Knights make the playoffs, since this year's draft will be way more stacked than last year's, so hopefully they don't screw that one up. But of course, because of the Eichel factor, even having a down year last season, he belongs to the elite of this league, hands down. So even though I don't like to announce winners and losers of this trade at this point, I will say that Vegas won the trade for now, and you can pretty much base that opinion only on Buffalo's organizational situation, since we don't know how bad it gets until the end of the regular season. But hopefully that answers some of your questions. I digress. And before we head to the actual topic of this episode, there were a few notable signings that I hadn't mentioned, so... Let's get those out of the way as well. First big one came from Toronto and it pretty much ended the trade and free agent conversations around this player. Kiss defenseman Morgan Riley was inked to an 8-year deal with 7.5 million annual AAV. <clears throat> Take note Chicago. This was pretty much a must signing but now they face another challenge heading into the offseason since Four of their top players are earning over 7.5 million plus William Nylander's 6.9 million contract. And to top it all off, Jack Campbell becomes a free agent next summer. And by the looks of it, he is bound for a hefty pay raise. Matthews, 11.6. Tavares, 11 million. Marner, 10.9. Will, 6.9. Riley, 7.5 7.5 and Mazin 5 million on the dot. God dang! Someone is getting the stick for sure, 
and this time I ain't even joking. Sandine and Lilligren also become RFAs, so those guys deserve some pennies as well, but bridge deals are more suitable for them, fortunately, at this point. But just imagine if these guys don't make it into at least, say, conference finals, the whole city will be in flames. Not that they are going to face Calgary, but you get what I mean. Someone will have a huge shoe mark on their ass, and the only one won't be Kyle Dubas. That I will promise you. The thing is that Riley was their marketing chip before he signed the extension, but now that he is signed, he probably isn't the most likely candidate to head elsewhere. Maybe. On the hindsight though, they could use that as a leverage in a trade if he ends up being shipped off in the offseason, but then they would lose their number one demon. Well, my head is twisted already, so I guess we should just leave the speculation for the future when it is more current. Just wanted to raise some questions and get you thinking. Leave your thoughts on this whole situation to my inbox, and maybe we can try to fix this sinking ship together. Mind you, you will be the captain. The other signing news came out of New York when another top D-man was signed to a big ticket and for a good reason. Again, pen and paper ready Blackhawks. Last year's Norris Trophy winner Adam Fox was signed to a seven-year deal worth, any guesses? Exactly the same amount as Seth Jones. 9.5 million per year. Can you imagine? That's a bargain if I've ever seen one, but to be honest, so was Makar's deal, so let's keep this civil. Without questions, one of the brightest young studs in the league and already 11 points in 10 games to start the season. If I had to come up with a nickname for him, it would be Fundamentals, because this guy has it all. Not an elite skater, but elite on his edges and extremely evasive. Plus, combine that with one of the best hockey IQs in the league, you have a maestro on your back end. Excellent passer and underrated shooter earning his paycheck, and if I was a Calgary Flames fan, I would punch another hole to my wall because of this deal. One of the best deals in the current NHL and could have easily reached the top three in 2016 draft class with his current remarks. Rock solid two-way pivot and to quote myself, will battle with Makar, Heiskanen, Wierenski and Hughes for the Norris Trophy for years to come. Okay, I added Wierenski to the list purely because I like him as a player and he doesn't get the recognition he deserves in Columbus. But what else can you say than good deal for the Rangers and now rest of the young core needs to take the next step to make them actual contender for the Stanley Cup. But those were the most recent NHL news and we can start to head towards the main topic of this episode, which is the biggest draft busts of the 2010s. The countdown will stop to 2017 since most of the first round picks from that draft class have played only two to three seasons in the NHL and rest have still some time to make their impact on the NHL ice. 
I don't want to be too harsh on the prospects, so I decided to leave out most of the recent drafts. But if you want me to make an episode from those as well, leave a comment on my social media and I will make it happen. Let me know what you think of these look back the memory lane type of episodes because I aim to make these on a semi-constant basis just to keep content coming. And for me it is always fun to see how the history has shaped the future. And one more reminder before we start. We are not going to name each player that hasn't broken through but more so focus on the most anticipated prospects that have failed to make an impact on the next level. But now we may finally begin. I'm going to make an episode focusing on the biggest deals in the future as well but not to extend this episode for too long, we are going to focus on the busts this time around. We will start from the 2010 draft where the top 5 was Taylor Hall, Tyler Sagan, Eric Gubranson, Ryan Johansson and Nino Niederreiter. Can you spot any busts? At least I would say that Gubranson has been a bust related to his third overall spot. And he has also played the least amount of games out of these five. 573 games played, 81 points and 648 penalty minutes. Doesn't sound like an elite blue liner to me. He wasn't outstanding during his draft year in Kingston but showed promise because of his big frame and solid defensive game but those are the only attributes which have translated to the NHL eyes as well. Now a bottom pairing rugged defenseman who specializes in clearing the front of the net and shot blocking but as you would expect nowhere near to his expected ceiling. NHL nevertheless but big miss from the Panthers in that draft. Then we continue our search from the top 10 and we find three names that pop off from the rest of the group. Brett Connolly, Alexander Burmistrov, and Dylan McIlrath. Connolly is the only player that still skates in the top tier. Burmistrov operates in the KHL, but the former 10th overall pick McIlrath has fallen to a career-long AHL player. Once expected to make a huge impact on the NHL ice, has shifted to a stay-at-home defenseman who racks up more penalty minutes than minutes on the ice. Big things were expected from this giant, but his skating has been his biggest flaw since getting drafted. Poor Mr. though had few OK seasons in the NHL and has racked over 300 games in the gel, so he isn't considered as a big of a bust as McIlrath in my notes. Connolly is the least disappointing, but when you see that he was drafted 6th overall, we could agree that he was drafted earlier than necessary. On the hindsight, of course. But then to the rest of the group, where the notables are Brandon Gormley, Joey Hishon, Quinton Howden, Mark Vicentine, and Emerson Eden. I was also considering Bo Bennett, Charity Nordy, and Mark Pizik, because we have names like Tarasenko, Hayes, Kuznetsov, and Coyle on the board as well. But since they were, and some of them still are staples in the NHL, I decided to leave them out this time around. But when it comes to the first class, they didn't end up being as valuable picks as expected. 
Gormley played only 58 games in the NHL. Hishon appeared in 13 games. Howden recorded 97 games. And goalie Vicentin didn't actually start any games. Especially Howden and Gormley were blue chip prospects coming into the draft, but failed to make an impact on the NHL ice. Hishon was also outstanding in the OHL, but his professional North American career ended up lasting for only five seasons, most in the AHL. So all in all, pretty tough looks for the franchises since, as I said, there were big names on the board in the late first round. Not too many huge misses, but the Gubranson pick especially sticks out like a short thumb. Not the most top-heavy draft class, but certainly many of the players drafted in the first round found a stable spot in the show. Let's head to 11 draft class. The 2011 draft class, though, was one of the stronger ones during this 10-year and certainly holds some of the current top-tier players in the league. The top five was Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Gabriel Landeskog, Jonathan Huberto, Adam Larson, and Ryan Strom. Many might argue that RNH was a bust related to his output, and I might agree on that point when you see that he left likes of Landeskog, Huberto, Couturier, Hamilton, and Shifley behind him. But he has become a multidimensional two-way center and has been able to put up points for the Oilers. And you also can't ignore his output in the juniors. When you look at the previous draft, I would say that we didn't see any major busts in this one. And even Adam Larson has become a very reliable top four defenseman in the league. Even though he hasn't become an elite right-handed blue liner. Strom as well has picked up the pace and is a prolific top six center for the Rangers. But then we head to top 15 and we find the first actual busts. At 11, Colorado drafted rugged defenseman Duncan Siemens, and right after, Carolina chose to pick Ryan Murphy with their 12th overall pick. Both failed somewhat miserably, and Siemens ended up spending only 10 times in the show during his career. Murphy was expected to become an elite offensive defenseman on the next level, but ended up becoming one of the most reliable AHL defensemen who has spent some time in the big league as well. But when you consider the expectations around these two, the ceiling ended up being way lower than what was first thought. Then, in the rest of the first round, we find names McNeil, Biggs, Plimple, Percy, Phillips and Jensen, who didn't make a dent to the NHL ice after the draft. All had brilliant junior careers, but once they faced the NHL, many of them didn't see more than a handful of games in the bright lights. And when you see how many players from the second round broke into the league, you see that this draft was overall quite top-heavy. For example, William Carlson, John Gibson and Nikita Kucherov were drafted on the second round and even Winnie Trojak got picked in the third round. Not too many misses in the first round, but as I said, very top-heavy when it comes to impactful players in the NHL. Next up, we have the notorious 2012 draft. 
Well, if we didn't see many busts in the last draft, now we certainly got some. Can you remember who was drafted first overall in 2012 by the Edmonton Oilers after a sovereign season in the OHL? Undecised Russian forward who was expected to be the next big thing out of Mother Russia. Yes, who else than Neil Yakupov? Just imagine what the Oilers could have had with back-to-back first overall picks, but they ended up drafting RNH and Yakupov with their picks. Well, that's none of my business, but certainly could have done better. And honestly, this draft was pretty underwhelming as a whole. Top 5, Yakupov, Ryan Murray, Alex Galchenyuk, Griffin Reinhardt and Morgan Riley. Riley was hands down the best player out of these five, but Yakupov wasn't the only bust as you could probably already tell. The other notable was Griffin Reinhardt, brother of Sam Reinhardt, who ended up dressing for only 37 NHL games in his professional career. And that's pretty disappointing from a top five pick to say the least. Big expectations coming into the draft, and even though he was ranked behind Riley before the draft, many teams skipped Riley because of his injury concerns that year. Well, Toronto ended up picking Riley at 5th overall, and Reinhardt, who was expected to be the Islanders' next big blue liner, ended up spending time in Edmonton as well, while making a career in the minors. Huge L for the Isles. And especially when you hear which players went right after Riley in the draft order. From 6 to 15, we find familiar faces such as Hampus Lindholm, Matt Dumba, Jacob Truba, and Philip Forsberg. So it ended up being a quite a big swing and miss. Also, Derek Puglio and Slater Coco were in the top 10, and they could probably be labeled as bust as well, since neither of them has been able to achieve the 250 game benchmark. Both are still active and have been replacement players in the show but lackluster output nevertheless when considering where they were drafted. Mihal Grigorenko, Redek Faxa and Zemgus Girgensons were also drafted in the top 15 but they've seen more NHL eyes than the previous few players so I wouldn't necessarily put them in the bust territory. From rest of the group, we can only find few names that pop out, but when you compare it to likes of Brady Shea, Teuvo Dravainen, Tanner Pearson and Andrei Vasilevsky, who were all drafted in the end of the first round, you could say that some teams could have done much better. Biggest letdowns in the rest of the group are Jordan Smoltz, Brendan Gons, Hendrik Samuelson and Malcolm Subban. And you could also consider Alex Galchenyuk as a bust, but he still plays in the league, so I decided to give him a pass this time around. Overall, a down year when it comes to top prospects, especially when you compare this draft to the previous one and the next one ahead of us, in which we are going to take a look at next. The 2013 draft ended up being one of the strongest drafts during the tenure, highlighted by the likes of Nathan McKinnon, Alexander Barkov, and, like it or not, Seth Jones. Another top-heavy draft with few notable names in the mix, 
The top five was McKinnon, Barkov, Jonathan Drouin, Seth Jones and Elias Lindholm. Other than Drouin, I wouldn't say that there were many huge busts, even though at this point you could throw Jones in the mix as well. But when looking at his numbers from days in Columbus, I wouldn't necessarily label him as a real bust, and more so focus on Drouin's achievements since getting drafted third overall behind McKinnon and Barkov. And even though he hasn't reached the potential people expected from him, he has honed out a career in the NHL and focused more on the defensive side of the puck, similar to Nugent Hopkins while still having the offensive tools to chip in on that side of the puck as well. But far from expectations as I said, and probably the biggest bust in this top 5. From the top 15, you can find stable NHL names such as Bo Horvat, Rasmus Ristolainen, Sean Monahan, Darnell Nurse, Josh Morrissey and Ryan Pulock. And the only name that really pops out is Samuel Moran. And even to this date, some Flyers fans still hope that he can elevate his game, but I have to be honest when saying this, it ain't going to happen. The towering defenseman has now even tried to break into their roster playing as a forward, so you could say that all the cards have been flipped except for the goalie spot. Only 29 games in the bright lights isn't up to par when comparing to the other players on the list, but his injury history pretty much explains the downward spiral in his career. He's been stable on the AHL ice, but the NHL has been out of reach almost for the entirety of his professional career. But as you can see, the top 15 was pretty solid, and at least I don't have many other names that could belong to the bust category at this point. But when we move to the rest of the first round picks, we find few names that stick out, and unfortunately not because of pleasant surprises. Two names, Mirko Müller, Kirby Reichel, Emil Poirier, Hunter Schinkerk, Michael McCarron, and Morgan Klimchuk ring any bells. No? Well, they do for me, since this was probably the first year that I really started to pay close attention to upcoming prospects, and I remember these names falling more than expected in the draft boards, but seemingly for a good reason. Mueller, 185 games. Reichel, 43 games. Poirier, 8 games. Shingaruk, 15 games. McCurran, 75 games. And Klimchuk, only one game. Not good. Mueller was expected to be the successor to Roman Josie, but he ended up staying as a bottom pairing defenseman, and rest of the group found few games in the NHL, but as you could probably guess, didn't shoot the lights out either. If I remember correctly, Shinkaruk was even in the lottery conversation, but ended up spending more time in China than he did in the jail. That was probably a nice experience, but I doubt that that was his vision coming into the NHL. And like I said, pretty good draft, but some of the names really stood out, and not in a good sense. But let's head to 2014 draft next.
2014 was once again a year for fluctuation, as we saw few of the league's brightest stars, as well as some that fell hard to their face as well. Top 5 was Aaron Ekblad, Sam Reinhardt, Leon Dreisaitl, Sam Bennett and Michael Dalcol. Can you spot the miss? Yeah, me too. Ekblad, Reinhardt and especially Dreisaitl are pretty much home runs and even Bennett has found his gear in Florida. So the only remaining player is Dalcol and another huge miss by the Islanders in the top 5. He ripped the WHL to shreds in his draft year, but that just didn't translate to professional scenery at all, despite his big frame and great offensive tool set. Only 111 games played and 21 points to his record is pretty awful, especially given the fact that he was considered a top 3 pick at some point during that year. I was really hoping him to make his breakthrough, but seemingly he couldn't reach the heights he was expected, and in recent years has been a depth option for the strong Islander squad. Not tremendous in the AHL either, so one of my favorite prospects from this draft class has really derailed his projection, and probably will be a filler for his entire professional career for an NHL team. But the fluctuation really kicks in once we get away from the top 5, as the next notable busts in the top 15 are Jake Virtanen, Brendan Berlini and Julius Honga. I was also considering adding Hayden Fleury to the list, but since he has found a stable job in Seattle and hasn't been atrocious, I decided to leave him out this time around. But when it comes to Virtanen, Honka and Berlini, it's a different ball game. Berlini found another gig in the NHL after a few years in Europe, but still is nowhere near the level he was expected to take in the NHL. Under 100 points in 246 games. Doesn't sound bad, but when you see that the top guys have played around 300-400 games, you start to understand my point. Bench has been calling quite a lot. Honga's case is another intriguing one since he was highly touted prospect coming into his draft year because of stellar season in Liga and World Junior tournaments, but never made a name for himself in the NHL. Great skater and puck mover never really found his game in the NHL, and one reason could have been his stature, but when you connected with his great skating, they should pretty much cancel each other out. Or at least that's what I think. Under 100 games in the show and most of his professional career spent in the always hungry league. And for a top 15 pick, that's not very good. Now he's earning his paychecks in Europe and will most likely spend rest of his career in that environment. Unfortunate scenes, but as you can see, it doesn't always pan out as you would hope it to. The last guy I mentioned is the infamous Jake Virtanen, who pretty much got expelled from the NHL this offseason after sexual assault allegations. He was a standout in the dub, but his professional career has so far been flagged with quite unnerving up and down seasons, production as well as performance-wise. 
Notorious for his tough physical playstyle, which has somewhat decreased his point totals because of time spent in the penalty box. He has showed glimpses of good production, but the consistency has been his downfall throughout his time in Vancouver. He's now in the KHL and we will see if he's ever able to make his comeback to the North American ice. Moving on to the rest of the first round, we've found only few notable misses when it comes to longevity in the NHL. Connor Blakely, Nikita Sherbach, Josh Hosang, Nikolai Goldobin and Anton Quenville as the last man picked in the first round. All players except for Goldobin have recorded less than 60 games played and Blakely hasn't even been able to step into the NHL eyes during his career. And I mean, I don't have much to say about these guys other than good offensive toolkits but never panned out in the NHL. Few Russians who never really found a home in the smaller ice surface and in a league where defense is as important as offense, if you get my reference. Pretty solid draft overall, but pretty big margins between the top dogs of this draft and the guys that really didn't stick despite good projections and high expectations. But that's how it goes. Some suck more than others, plain and simple. On to the notorious 2015 draft class. I guess I shouldn't have to remind you who were the big dogs in this draft class because one of them was already mentioned in this episode related to pretty big trade. But if you don't have a memory of an elephant, let's remind ourselves of the top five of this draft. Connor McJesus on top, pretty good player. Jack Eichel, not bad either, Dylan Strom, Mitch Marner, and Noah, Man Rocket, Hannifin. Can you spot the imposter? Yes, exactly, Dylan Strom. And if you just look at his point totals, you might be asking, like, what are you even talking about? 123 points in 209 games. I bet that's more points than you saw minutes in your career. And you are probably right, but six years in total in the show and just only 200 games played seems a bit fishy, if you ask me. He had a good run in Chicago once he was traded from Arizona, but now he's out of their lineup and bound to be traded once the suitable team comes along. But he was pretty much the only bust in the entire top 10 since it was overall quite stacked and the only other name I could think of in the top 10 was Pavel Zaka, but he has found a good groove in New Jersey and increased his point total, so he gets a pass this time. But when we move from the top 10, we find major misses in the next 10 spots. Starting off with Lawson Kraus, followed by Jakub Sporl, Jack Sennison, and Yevgeny Shvechnikov and what makes it even more remarkable is the fact that Denis Gurianov, Matt Barzal, Kyle Connor and Tomas Shabbat were picked in that same range as well. And if you don't know, two of those picks belong to Bruins. But if you know your stuff, this shouldn't come as a surprise. 
Cross has taken his place in the NHL, but the top two line projection is still quite far away when you look at his offensive or even defensive outputs. 80 points in 292 games doesn't stand out, that's for certain, and has become a physical presence in the bottom six. So you could say that he starts this bus streak in the first round. Both Sparl and Senishin have seen some games in the NHL, but were huge misses when compared to players drafted after them, which creates even more bust value to their names. The last player nominated was Andrei Svechnikov's older brother Yevgeny, who found his new home in Winnipeg and has been suiting up for the Jets and has showed some promise in the new environment. So we can only hope that he keeps his level and avoids the pit that Sporl and Shenishin have fallen into. The rest of the first rounders are mostly NHL regulars, only exceptions being Noah Juleson, Gabriel Carlson and Nick Merkley. All had high hopes when getting drafted but somehow their game just hasn't matched the NHL demand level and all of them have seen more ice time in the minors than in the bright lights. But for sure one of the strongest draft classes of the 2010s, topped off by this generation's best player in the entire sport, Edmonton's number 97. Let's head to the penultimate draft class of this episode. So second to last draft class of this walkthrough is weaker than the previous one and some of the players are still trying to find their footholds on the NHL ice. Top 5 in 2016 consisted of Austin Matthews, Patrick Kleine, Pierre-Luc Dubois, Jesse Puljujärvi and Olli Juolevi. So you could say it was a pretty good year for the Finns. Unfortunately, one of the Finns seems to be the only big miss of this top 5, and that player is Olli Juolevi. Extremely steady presence on the blue line and the former captain of the Finland's U20 teams hasn't found a stable home in the NHL yet because of the lengthy injuries and the inability to break into Vancouver's back end. Just a few weeks back he got traded to Florida for no Juleson and Juho Lammikko, but the situation doesn't get any easier in Miami as the team is one of the top teams in the league and their blue line is even more stacked than it was in Vancouver. There's still time for the Finnish blue liner but time is starting to run out, even more so in his new environment in Florida. Other than that, the top 4 is pretty solid now that the nice Bison has elevated his game to a new level alongside Max Xavier and Pierre-Luc Dubois has started the new season in Winnipeg with over point per game average. But in the rest of the top 15 we find some names that seem to stick out more than others on this list so far. First name that sticks out is the highly touted Swedish prospect Alex Nylander, followed by Logan Brown and Michael McLeod. Tyson Jost was also one option but since Colorado's center department is quite thick and he has converted his playstyle to more defensive one, he sits pretty nicely in the roster even without major inputs offensively. But when it comes to Nylander, Brown and McLeod, I'm pretty disappointed, to be honest. 
Brown hasn't panned out as the big body two-way playmaker he was expected to become and has spent most of his career in the AHL, despite great numbers in the OHL and a massive frame. Same goes with McLeod, who hasn't been able to match his offensive output from the juniors and seemingly is still missing another gear, which would boost him up to New Jersey's top two lines. Not absolutely horrendous numbers professionally, but more was expected when he was drafted 15th overall by the Devils. But the biggest one without questions is the 8th overall pick, Nylander, who has been suffering with injuries throughout his career and for example missed the entire 2020-2021 season because of this exact issue. He's still stuck in the AHL and despite few stints in the NHL, he seems to lack the absolute firepower to break into NHL team's top 6 and add to that somewhat insufficient defensive game. You find the reason why he has spent more time in the minors than up top. Expectations were high but could be another Buffalo project who ends up failing at the end of the day for some odd reason. But as we ascend to the rest of the top 30, we find more names that either haven't found their way to the NHL or are just filling bottom 6 roles in the NHL rosters. Kiefer Bellows, Denis Jelowski, Julian Gauthier, German Rubtsov, Hendrik Borgström, Riley Tufti and Lucas Johnson are the names that stick out from the rest of the group. Max Jones, Tage Thompson, Brett Howden, Trent Frederick and Sam Steele could have been on one of these lists if they belong to different draft classes, but since the level is inferior to many others and they've spent decent amount of time in the show, I decided to leave them out for those reasons. Nevertheless, the guys named before them have been more or less disappointing related to their first round titles, but we start to get to a range where those guys have still years to prove their worth in the big league. Of course, the time is valuable, but Logan Stanley is a good example of a player that just needs a bit more maturing than many others on the list. He's now in Jets rotation and has been playing good minutes each night, so I won't go into detail on these guys, but the curve is starting to head downwards, whether they like it or not. Overall, not a bad draft class, but a lot inferior than the year prior. But many gems can be found in this list as well, which we will discuss in a later episode. That's a promise. Let's head to the last one. Last draft class of this episode is the 2017 draft class, where we saw some fluctuation once again between the best and the worst picks of the entry draft. Already in this draft, we start to see some players that haven't even made the show yet, and most of them have spent about 2-3 to three years in the league, so it is quite hard to judge them based on just few years in the league. So with this class I won't name any absolute busts, because it is too early, but more so players that are very close to becoming one, if the tide doesn't turn. So just keep that in mind while we start to run through these blokes. The top 5 consisted of Nico Hischier, Nolan Patrick, Miro Heiskanen, Kale McCarr and Elias Pettersson 
And straight away, you can probably tell who doesn't belong to this group. Exactly. Nolan Patrick as the second overall pick. Pretty tough choice for Philly, quite honestly. Of course, we know that he has suffered from post-concussion symptoms the past few years, and those take a toll on a player without any doubt. And for that reason, I wouldn't want to label him as a bust since it has been a struggle for him, and I don't wish those injuries to anyone, and quite honestly, it could even wreck his whole career if these issues stay in his everyday life. But unfortunately, this time we don't rank players based on their comprehensive story, but rather based on their performance. And based on that, he has had an underwhelming career so far related to his expectations. Pretty much same story fits to his year, but his point totals differentiate from Patrick's with quite large margin. Other than those two, the top five is extremely decent, and you surely aren't out of your mind if you suggest that Someone else should have taken the first overall spot, quite the opposite. But pretty strong top 5 nevertheless. Then we move out of the top 5 and we start to see some huge gaps between players of this class. And for example, already in the top 10 we start to see some players which are starting to close on the bust territory. Cody Glass, Lias Anderson and Michael Rasmussen at the forefront while Casey Middlestead and Owen Tippett come close behind with a bit better execution. Glass was traded to Nashville this offseason and currently represents the A, while both Rasmussen and Anderson operate in the NHL with pretty small contribution, so I don't see a need to discuss these guys more than is needed. Still some time, as I said, and especially Rasmussen could curve out a steady spot in the top 9 for himself as a two-way power forward. Then outside of the top 10 we see some familiar faces until we run into Timothy Lilligren and Urho Vaganainen. Both guys have good potential still and Lilligren has been on the Leafs squad this season while Vaganainen has been a replacement in the Bruins squad during injuries. So slow and steady, no need to rush yet. After them, we can spot Christian Veselainen and Ryan Paling, who both have had some success in the A, but yet to make a name for themselves in the bright lights, and the last name on this list is Shane Bowers. Somewhat of a reach during the draft and so far hasn't showed anything special in the AHL either, so we'll see if he ever makes the NHL level, cause we've seen this story many times before. But as I said, so many players are yet to make their impact on the next level, so this draft was only included because some of the players are starting to lose the grip, if I may say so, and the sand is running out in their hourglass for their NHL future, or at least an impactful one. I think that some names will pop up in the next two years, and we can then check back once again how they're projections have held to that point. Top heavy draft class for sure, but I feel like some players are going to raise their heads and make this class stronger than it looks at this point. But that concludes our draft class coverage for this episode. Hopefully this was something out of the ordinary to change things up a bit, 
And to let you know that these kind of episodes will be stables in this podcast in the future as well. Once this episode comes up, the UFC 268 will be done and dusted. And we will find out how many predictions I got right this week once again. Hopefully, all of them. And if you haven't watched it once this comes out, be sure to do so, because I assure you, it is going to be a total circus. But that's pretty much it for this episode. We'll see if I manage to put out an episode next week. It will be extremely tight for me, school-wise, but... If it doesn't work out, I will let you know on my social media, that's for certain. Thank you once again for listening. I appreciate your support more than you think. And hopefully you've enjoyed this week's episode. Have a wonderful week, you beast. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Until next time. All right.